Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and talk about telehealth and how it is impacting uh, responses to the um, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, today, I have um, guest. Uh, our guest is um, Kim. Alnquist, who is the nurse practitioner who's worked with um, Wilson County Department of Health and their school-based health center, uh, the Wilson Area uh, Student Health Program. Uh, Through grant funding, they've been able to implement a telehealth program uh, last uh, February and uh, that's running. There's some other programs going on, and uh, there are also some new changes because of uh, government uh, relaxing standards related to telehealth. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, I will assume, but you can tell me, how has the um, coronavirus impacted your uh, operations there at the uh, health department? Um, so I am housed in a school-based health center. So obviously when the schools close, my two clinics also close that I service. Um, so for a while there, I, I wasn't doing a lot of business, but now telehealth has picked up. So now that the um, regulations are a little bit more lenient, I'm able to see patients over um, FaceTime, or just a plain old telephone call to diagnose minor problems that don't require face-to-face visits. So over mm-hmm. the past few days, um, I have been seeing more and more patients utilizing those services because people are le- legitimately scared. They don't want to leave their home. They don't want to come into a clinic and be exposed to others. So um, I am doing more telehealth visits. Now, are you able to um, provide those uh, consultations outside of the college, which is actually where you are right now? Yes, sir. Um, I'm able to provide those to um, to the clients that I typically serve in the school-based health centers, and I also serve all the staff members of Wilson County Schools, um, mm-hmm. so all the teachers, custodians, um, front, you know, secretaries, front office um, staff, so anyone in the school system or in the college that I serve, I'm able to see those patients as well as those staff members. Okay. And that's, that was the initial part of the stuff, right, was that you are providing these services to a couple of locations, actually, right? That, that was why you guys have telehealth? Yes, sir. Um, so I am the only provider that services the school-based health centers, And um, Wilson County is sort of spread out. So when we initially started our project, I was in a middle school, and that was so successful that the foundation that funds our grant um, decided to have a school-based health center in another location that's more rural um, out in Wilson County. And so we added a high school. So in order for me to see patients at both sites without driving back and forth five or six times a day, Um, we started telehealth services where there's a registered nurse at both clinics and then I'm housed at one clinic, but I see patients all day long from both the middle school and the high school utilizing telehealth. 
Okay. So now that you've got the um, restrictions of, off of uh, telehealth, do you expect um, both um, more students, number one, but is there a possibility that telehealth can be used by the department to provide services to other, um, you know, the general public? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Now that the schools are, are closed um, for several weeks, we have, um, I've been in discussion with the health director as, as recent as 30 minutes ago about using telehealth for our patients over um, at the health department at Wilson County Health Department. So we are exploring more ways that um, telehealth can be utilized. How would you see the impact overall? It is really going to depend on the um, on the patients or the clientele that that we need. Some don't have internet services. Some don't um, know how to use technology. For our older population, is especially what I'm thinking of. Um, so the learning curve there would be great. Um, and, it, and it's all new for both the providers as well as the as the patients or the or the sick people at home. Um, so I think as telehealth is is evolving, I think there's a great potential um, for it to be utilized more and more. I think COVID-19 has um, helped us kind of speed that process along. I mean, even just talking with the health director, there's resistance from other staff members. There's resistance from um, patients because when you say, oh, I'm not going to really see a provider today or I'm not going to really see my nurse practitioner, but then once they have a telehealth session, they love it and they want to do it again and again. But the first initial visit is always um, the patient feels, I think, that they're not getting as good of care when in reality sometimes over telehealth I can see like the inside of an ear, let's say, using the otoscope if, I'm, if I have a clinic-to-clinic visit. Sometimes you can see just as good, if not better, using the telehealth equipment. Um, unfortunately, when the patients are home, and I'm seeing them over telehealth. We're utilizing FaceTime because now that's um, we can see patients with not HIPAA compliant. Before we had to have a HIPAA compliant um, platform, but now with the COVID, we are able to utilize FaceTime or even just a simple telephone call. Um, then sometimes you can't visually see the patient, so you have to go on what the patient's telling you the assessment that they're giving you. And, and if that's the case, then the patient is going to need to come in for a face-to-face -face visit if there's, if there's a diagnosis that needs to be made where either the provider has to visually see the patient and, and the patient doesn't have that type of um, technology available or if there's a condition where the provider actually needs to palpate or touch the patient um, for an accurate diagnosis. Right. Now, what I'm starting to understand from um, other people in the in the industry is that the issue of um, like your platform, um, uh -huh. on the um, you know the government is relaxing standards for um, you know using telehealth, so that now you can use almost off the shelf. Uh, monitors and uh, FaceTime and all of that. It seems that the uh, the compromise is the quality of the video. And so, in the long term, as you you know get more people online uh, doing these uh, 
use the platform or, you know, that quality of monitor and so forth because one of the big benefits of telehealth is being able to have, you know, see the patient as well as you could, you know, obviously not touching them, but that, that you can, you know, visu- visually see what the, the patient is talking about. Um, is that sort of a good assessment that that we're going to have to deal with sort of the, um, you know, the upside and also the downside of using off-the-shelf, if you will, um, solutions? Yes, I definitely think your assumption is correct. Interesting. Okay. Um, one of the things I uh, have picked up from some other folks um, that appear that you guys are doing, um, uh, there are cases where doctors have been so um, been moving so quickly now that uh, telehealth restrictions have gone away that they're for thinking about what they're doing and what the changes um, require, right, of, of how the doctors go about their um, practice. But it seems like the best thing is to take the time to train both the um, patient with those initial um, consults from the patients, because as you said, you know, this is not something that they're used to, but in the long run, if we do the, the staff training uh, and then you do or be more patient with the patients, um, in the end, you know, you'll be better off, uh, you know, getting the best um, use from the uh, telehealth technology. I mean, that's my, again, absolutely. that's my assumption. Yes. Okay. No, absolutely. I think you're correct, definitely. Now, one of the things that um, the New York governor talked about is using facilities such as dormitories, uh, hotels that may not be full, uh, or to yeah, to use to see to admit patients who would normally be in a hospital, but because the hospitals are being slammed, they're using these alternative locations, right? To um, right. to users and wireless technology and other technology to to make it so that you can monitor patients. They say surgical procedures, or they have uh, some sort of chronic illness, and they need to be hospitalized for a few days, right? But that, Mm -hmm. my impression, um, telehealth could make that transition to alternative sources better. What's what's your you know thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that is feasible. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any experience with that, and I'm sure most providers in America don't because we've not ever had we've not ever gone through what we're going through as a nation. But I do think um, I do think there's a definite possibility that um, utilizing alternative locations in telehealth um, can be beneficial to our patients as well as our providers. 
Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's talked about a lot with telehealth is um, mental health. Uh, the fact that we don't have a lot of, or have enough um, practitioners, clinicians, and so forth who can handle uh, mental health care. And in rural areas, uh, the lack of um, specialists in that area is a uh, big deal. You know, how do you yes. see that as a um, again an avenue for telehealth to be very helpful in your areas that are are quite rural? And then you also have, um, have Wilson, the city. Uh, which is which is more urban, but nevertheless, you know, mental health is a you know illness that that affects uh, both urban and rural folks. Sure, absolutely, and mental health, especially in the population that I serve, um, the high school population and even the middle school population, there's a great need for mental health providers, as you mentioned. Um, currently, the Wilson County Health Department is partnering with East Carolina University and through their NC STEPS program, and we're using telehealth um, there. This, cur- this current program for NC STEPS is for patients 18 and over, so not all of my population qualifies for that. We're looking mm-hmm. for a youth um, alternative, but currently the NC STEPS program has partnered with the, hosp- with the healthcare um health department and we are providing um, services where a patient they do have to come in to the health department but they're able to tap into resources for psychiatrists in neighboring counties um, where they can be seen and diagnosed work out a treatment plan and then the providers at the health department collaborate with that mental health professional psychiatrist or whomever the patient has been seeing for the follow-up care so not all of the visits have to be done um, through telehealth, but that initial visit is definitely done through telehealth with utilizing the health department's um, telehealth services, and it just improves access to care. Some patients can't travel the 45 to minutes to an hour to a neighboring county in order to see a psychiatrist. So this program, it's, we're in the initial phases. Um, again, it's something new we've just started in the last few months, but I do see a great potential there for helping our patients and also our providers. Most, or I can say all of the providers at the health department, um, we generalize in, we specialize in general, med, you know, general medicine, family nurse practitioners is what we are. And so we do have some mental health training, but um, for the most part, I know I can speak for myself um, only, but I'm, I'm not always comfortable starting um, psychiatric drugs on patients where if they can come in and, and see the psychiatrist through the um, North Carolina STEPS program, have a solid diagnosis, and have the initial medication started, then I feel more comfortable managing that medication. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that um, the quality of the um, video um, obviously, it's important in, uh, you know, if you're looking at uh, a wound after a surgery and make sure that it's healing and so forth. Um, I understand that being able to see clearly the patient and maybe 
subtle uh, body language issues or facial issues uh, and so forth makes a big difference of the um, psychiatric, uh, the, the, you know, the, the drug regimens and all that. But if I'm having a consultation, to be able to find sure. out to see is important. Absolutely. And so that's now, true for um, okay. a lot of diagnoses, not only mental health diagnosis, but that's also true for, you know, a respiratory patient. You need, you can see the quality of their, the depth of their breathing, how how rapid they're breathing, um, how, their skin color, you know, are they cyanotic, that's blue, are they, you know, not getting enough oxygen. So there's a lot of things that the video quality and, and the video um, conferencing can really help a provider when they're, doing a telehealth visit. Because mm-hmm. so, I bring this up because um, why are we talking about this in, um, uh, on a book show about broadband? Uh, and, and Chris Mitchell will, will help explain a lot of that, the other guests on, on the show. But, um, you know, you are in uh, Wilson, uh, Wilson County, and Wilson, you know, the city of Wilson has the Green Light Public Network, which is uh, well touted as um, a great innovation, and it helps keep people um, connected very well. Um, do you see the uh, having an impact on the quality of the telehealth services that you perform or can perform down the road. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. I, I definitely think that um, the quality of the video, the quali- the speed of the um, interaction, um, the, the more we can make it real time. And, you know, I, I will say there has been times where I've had a delay, um, in, in my video chat or in my video assessment when I've been between the two schools. And, um, you know, we initially when we went live with it, we, we did have some video um, delays and some feedback issues. And once those were resolved, the quality of the video and the quality of the visit improved greatly. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other, um, you know, that was just, getting off the ground uh, when all of this um, coronavirus stuff, but it was the um, barbershop program uh, where barbershop customers are and uh, Wilson uh, Greenlight, uh, their uh, managers were very helpful in helping introduce uh, barbershop, uh, you, I mean, that's where we came, where, you know, where we met, and helping get this thing off the ground. Now, and when all and everyone can, you know, now talk to people and, you know, in person, and the barbershops are rocking, um, I expect that the, um, the program will be beneficial for, uh, you know, for the community, um, you were very uh, early um, 
supporter of this, and I'd like to get some of the your thoughts on, um, you know, how do you see this as being? Craig, I'm really sorry, but it I, it was a little choppy, and I I didn't understand your full question. I, I apologize. No, no, no. It's a, the, the, we're having some difficulty because unlike uh, Wilson, I am sitting in a uh, a less than ideal. But anyway, um, we're talking about the. Uh, which we've been talking about and working through, how do you see that program helping uh, the, the area? The telehealth program that I'm currently with through our um, Wilson Area School Health and, no, no, and the health department? To, oh. No, I was referring to the barbershop. Oh, the barbershop. Program. The barbershop. Yeah, oh, oh totally. Um, so as as you know, and, and most individuals know, we don't always go in to see our healthcare provider like we should. Um, there's lots of people walking around with elevated blood pressures, other problems, other health disparities. But the people in Wilson, if they want come into our clinic for whatever reason, if they're willing to allow us to have um, a telehealth visit while they are visiting their barbershop, um, I definitely think that that we can make an impact on their overall health. You know, if we can identify the elevated blood pressure early on before we have, in, um, you know, organ damage um, to, to their major organs. Kidney damage is one of the major things that high blood pressure can cause if it's not treated. So identifying these patients early on um, for whatever reason that they don't want to come into a clinic to be seen, I definitely think it can have a positive impact on the overall health of our community. Um, and and sometimes the the blood pressure may just be slightly elevated. So having a telehealth visit while they're at the barbershop and getting a few pointers on reducing sodium or, or increasing their exercise or changing some lifestyle factors may be all that they need, whereas others may need to be started on medication and um, and be seen by a provider. So... I'm very excited for the project. I, I, I'm sorry that COVID came came along and kind of interrupted our progress because I really do see a great need for the project, and I can see a lot of potential um, positive things that will come out of this project. And in case our audience hasn't uh, been aware of the, the, the barbershop program, basically um, the barbershop, in this case, it's a different uh, what is Melo's bar? Uh, don't, don't let him know that I pull his face on the name. Um, the barbershop uh, provides a um, pressure monitor that allows the, pace, the, the, the customers to uh, record their blood pressure. And then there's a telehealth um, uh, software that the data to go from the barbershop to Kim's office, right? Data know their their age and and uh, the, a couple other factors, and then correct, um, connect them with uh, nurse practitioners or others to help them uh, get into some sort of a program to reduce their um, uh, blood pressure. So the coolness of it is that uh, the the barbershop then becomes a telehealth outpost and and a, and a valuable connection to um, uh, Kim's operation. So I think that's going to be a big uh, a big plus there. Um, to, to 
to wrap this up and uh, then talk with our other guest, um, Chris. Uh, Kim, uh, how do you see, you know, after we get past all of this COVID uh, craziness, where do you see telehealth going um, both for your department but also in in the city or county of, of Wilson? Yeah, I, I definitely see it um, increasing. I hope um, that patients as well as providers will get comfortable with telehealth um, and allow it to take off like it should and could. Um, it's hard to really to really know. I think a lot of telehealth depends on both users, both the patient and the providers in. Um, but I do think that as the school-based health centers grow in Wilson County, we do plan on utilizing more telehealth just to make the provider, myself, I'm the only provider again currently, but make myself more um, available to patients throughout the county at all of our different school systems or schools within the system. I also think that um, projects like the Barbershop Project can really help, um, like I said before, increase patient um, access to care. And as those sort of projects take off, I do see telehealth increasing and being um, and being utilized more and more. Great. Do you foresee um, a general uh, community uh, engagement and uh, approval of telehealth, you know, doctors and other healthcare professionals, right? And that's one group that I would expect would be uh, receptive to telehealth. But also, it's helpful, I think, having, you know, the mayors and the city council and, you know, your representatives and community leaders to get behind the technology because we're really talking about. Uh, a, a radical change of healthcare. Right, exactly. Um, I, I do think having all stakeholders on board is very important. I also think that it's very important, um, as, as we all know, we, as providers and as a um, healthcare community in general. Now, the, health, the Wilson County Health Department is not for profit, but other providers are. Um, so I think the, the reimbursement and the payer. Um, guidelines or, or things that are changing now because of COVID, um, I think if they, they stay in place, I do think that telehealth will, the, the trajectory will just increase even faster. But I do think if CMS and, and big insurance companies change the way they're reimbursing, then I do think that providers would probably go back to the more old-fashioned or in-office face-to-face visits. So I think you know, just having everybody on the same page and, and endorsing telehealth will provide that reassurance to patients that, hey, this is a safe alternative or this is a good um, method for me to see my provider without having to come into an office for every visit. Now, of course, there's still going to be some visits where we need to see the patient. Um, but as we utilize more telehealth, I can even see, you know, lab companies getting on board, mobile laboratory units where, where a phlebotomist can come out to the home and draw blood. We do that already now at Home Health. But, um, you know, why couldn't a phlebotomist go out and see a patient at their home and draw their blood after a telehealth visit with their provider so that the patient doesn't have to leave their own home if transportation is an issue, so, so to speak, but they do have um, a way to communicate with their provider for that visit over broadband. 
Great. Well, this has been a good conversation. And, Kim, I want to thank you for taking the time out of all the other craziness in your world to uh, to speak for projects and, and telehealth and, and so forth. I wish you much uh, success with all of your initiatives. And, and, um, and I guess the last word is, you know, be safe and, and try to maintain sanity. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, again for having me. And, um, again, wash your hands, everyone, and <laughs> practice good hand hygiene. And I hope you all stay safe as well. All righty. Thank you again. Thank um, you. No worries. No worries. I, w- I want to put a plug in for our sponsor, uh, Ready, ReadyNet. They help community broadband networks add subscribers and also increase revenue through the premium health telehealth services that they make possible connecting the home and the hospitals uh, be, uh, to be more, um, you know, better health care for everyone. Thank you. All right. So um, our other guest is Chris Mitchell. Chris, how are you? You're here, right? Yes. Yes, I'm here, ah. Craig. And you are uh, struggling. The connection that you're on makes me uh, think that maybe we should come up with some sort of community solution for you. <laughs> Bless you. And with that, we're just going to roll right into the nature of, um, you know, of Chris's involvement here. Um Chris is the director of the um, Community Broadband Networks Initiative with the uh, Institute of um, Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis. Um, uh, Chris is a leading national expert on uh, community networks and a former guest of the show, and we run around in many of the same circles. Chris, thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Craig. And and yeah, I, um, I'm sorry that we'll be running around in virtual circles now rather than bumping into each other at uh, <laughs> events in person. Ah, we will we will survive. Um, but it does, uh, you know, we, you were talking about the quality of this connection that is just making me crazy. Um, I think the the uh, coronavirus has brought to the forefront how bad broadband is in so many different areas of um, the country. And telehealth cannot function without broadband. So, you know, let's start with what are some of those fault lines that we're seeing as a result of having more people at home kids at home trying to scramble for, you know, internet time and also trying to get telehealth up and running? Well, I think it's it's an unfortunate repeating of history. I mean, one of the things that we are definitely seeing is this um, winner-take-all is a a phrase 
um, that's used to describe what we're seeing, I think, in that uh, people like me that have a high-quality cable connection or a fiber-optic connection, if they can, um, we might see a slight degradation. Uh, there's times when, when I might notice that the connection is not as good as it was previously before the virus when everyone was home. But for most of us, we're still able to do the things we need to do, um, those of us who are fortunate enough. Um, the people who were on slower networks, um, who may not have been able to afford the higher networks, or maybe in areas in which no one's bothered to roll out a better network, um, you know, those people are are seeing networks that are very slow. Um, you know, they used to be slow. Now they seem to be much slower. And maybe in, in some cases, particularly in frontier territories where, um, you know, that company is currently in bankruptcy and has criminally underinvested in its network. Um, you know, multiple states have, have, have explored how it's violated um, laws and consumer, um, you know, advertising, um, truth and advertising types of um, requirements. Um, you know, those people really are significantly disadvantaged. And then the people who don't even have the access in their home, they are so disadvantaged. I mean, it's not just a matter of being a little bit left behind. They actually have to put their health at risk potentially to leave the home so that their kids can do schoolwork perhaps or so that they can get access to the news or or who knows uh, what else because they have to go to some kind of public Wi-Fi spot most likely to be able to um, access the Internet. And so I think, you know, it's, it's worth noting not only that the, the people who have been historically disadvantaged are very much more disadvantaged uh, than those of us who are, I would say, inconvenienced um, when it comes to our, our connections, um, but that this is a, a repeated pattern that we've seen in that we have our elected officials have refused to deal with. Um, you know, we're, we're content to let um, historically marginalized communities basically have to work harder and harder and harder just to try to stay even. And, and I find that to be a disappointing. And to talk about the world of, of, of telehealth, how do you see, uh, you know, how critical is it to get um, broadband into place so that you can have good telehealth um, services? I think it is it's it's obviously more critical now than it was 2 months ago um you know 3 months ago um but at the same time I think this answer will explain how it also will be more critical in 2 years when we have a vaccine hopefully for this you know specific um coronavirus um so the thing about telehealth is that Again, if you look at the people who are the most disadvantaged, um, and in particular, if we focused on those in rural populations who are significantly disadvantaged and don't have uh, broadband Internet access, they're in places in which there's this phenomenon called rural hospital closure. Um, and, and there's actually been a recent report from Connected Nation on telehealth um, that goes through and identifies um, all kinds of counties that are significantly underserved for healthcare needs, um, in part because of these hospital closures, in part for a variety of other reasons. But telehealth is something that can really help bridge that gap. And this is not just a matter I think of we might think of as someone who has an acute situation and, you know, every few months has to go to the hospital. 
Um, it's actually really important for people who have recurring issues, um, chronic issues. And in, a, in particular, I think the one that I focus on a lot is diabetes, um, a disease that um, drives a tremendous amount of cost in our medical system. And if we were able to just slightly improve outcomes by using uh, treatments and um, checking in with people using telehealth applications, the cost savings to society from having fewer diabetes complications would probably pay to connect all of America, frankly, that don't have the access today. I mean, there's just so much money in the healthcare system that if you can just be a little bit more efficient with it, you save tremendous amounts of money. And in particular, I would target that in rural areas where we know people have less access to doctors. It's more inconvenient and much more challenging to get to uh, hospital appointments, to get to see doctors, and that sort of a thing. So now one of the questions I've been doing, um, advocating for telehealth for about two and a half years, and I think when I first showed up at a broadband function and talked about telehealth and so forth, and I think I got some nice, polite stares um, and say, oh, well, that's okay. I think now, as I thought then, that there should be a marriage between telehealth and the community broadband space, right? Um, agree. I mean, you, like I said, we do run in the same circles, but – you know, is there a rational role for broadband and telehealth? Yes. And I think, you know, this actually, it kind of builds on uh, the point I was trying to make when it comes to diseases like diabetes in terms of the immense costs. One of the challenges is, is that, you know, um, if you look at a AT&T providing access in a rural area, um, AT&T um, if they were to expand broadband to offer better services and services to a wider footprint in rural America. And that resulted then in fewer health problems because people were using telemedicine. AT&T does not make more money because of those successes. And, and that's where I feel like we need to focus on uh, networks that have a different um, imperative for why they are built and how they justify, um, you know, their costs. Um, electric cooperatives, telephone cooperatives, uh, municipal networks, um, cities that are partnering with, um, you know, existing providers, they have different incentives to improve the community because they're scaled in a way in which they know the community. And so, you know, I, I think, again, to pick on AT&T, AT&T, if its services could improve um, medical outcomes in um, across northern northern um, Mississippi or across the the Delta, uh, the Mississippi Delta, um, AT&T doesn't know those people, right? It doesn't have a stake in improving their outcomes. Whereas the electric cooperatives that serve that area or the local, you know, independent companies that are rooted in that area know those people. They do see that as a reason for driving investment and doing a better job, making sure that people have access to modern tools to make their lives better. And, and so, I mean, I think too many times smart people uh, like us and others, <laughs> um, they, they think of this in, in terms of technology. But there's also a big question about the incentives of who owns the technology that drives where are they going to expand it, 
you know, at what prices will they offer it? Are they going to really try to like push telehealth by sponsoring, um, you know, information sessions and trying to get the information out there working with local clinics? Um, or are they the kind of a company that is just focused on um, trying to sell more packages of, of um, you know, of uh, internet service that they think of as enabling streaming video? Um, and there's just two different conceptions of what the internet is in many ways. And the conception of people like you and I is that it's this tool that enables all kinds of almost magical things. And one of those things that we're, we're talking about right now with the telehealth you have to have the right incentives to get all of the benefits that are possible. And, and that comes from the community networks, whether it's Wilson. Um, I think, you, you know, you're familiar with Westminster and Maryland with a, with a municipal partnership with a private company, uh, Ting. Um, but those are the sorts of things that, that we need is that thinking outside the box because you have different incentives than uh, those who um, just want to sell more packages. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, things that, right? So there's a short-term need, which is, um, you know, we've identified uh, different ways in which deal with the impacts of the uh, COVID uh, deal. Um, is there, in your mind, some short-term uh, solutions, you know, to, to get broadband in a hurry into places that need it. Yes, I think some of them are being tapped. Um, the One of the things that, that you and I have noted before is the restrictions on local governments. Um, and I don't think this is the, the first one um, that will make the most difference across all the states. But it's also one of the ones that's just the dumbest in that, you know, Chattanooga, cities in North Carolina, um, you know, there's 19 states that limit local authority uh, to build these kinds of networks in various ways. And even though cities in North Carolina, for instance, can build um, Wi-Fi access points uh, in order to get service out if they're not charging for them, many of them don't know that. You know, these are these are normal people who run local governments and and I think they are um, confused about what their authority is, and they're distracted right now. Um, and we just need states to basically trust local authorities who will have to take responsibility for their actions. Um, and so the first is definitely just state barriers to local decision-making. It has to go. Um, but the thing that I think is making the most difference immediately is figuring out how to get high-quality Wi-Fi access points in parking lots and things like that. Uh, we've seen many different places uh, over the past year experimenting with um, school buses that are outfitted with radios that turn a, a high-quality LTE you know, 4G signal into Wi-Fi for people to, who are near the school bus to use it. And we just saw um, you know, from Ozarks Go, uh, an electric cooperative in Arkansas, they're taking fiber to a school bus now and um, making sure that that, that um, access point has plenty of bandwidth for the demand. Um, we've seen notes from all over the country of these sorts of Wi-Fi access points being expanded in convenient locations so people can get to them and hopefully maintain physical distancing uh, and stay healthy. Um, and so I think that's the, the most immediate thing is to just spread that out. But we really need policy to get people connected in their homes. And that means 
two things. One is making sure that there are physical connections available at reasonable prices. Um, that includes both rural areas where there's nothing today and urban areas where we may have cable connections that are unaffordable. Um, we need uh, some kind of connection that will be affordable and reasonable. But also, uh, we need to make sure that people have the training and the literacy and the devices to be able to use it in a, in a safe manner. And that's something that I'm sure you've had folks on who've talked about the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, NDIA. Um, right. you know, I think they're doing tremendous work. Um, their website, digitalinclusion.org, has a, has a page that's just dedicated to how different Internet service providers have responded to this. Uh, and let me say that the final thing is I should compliment Comcast. Um, people might be surprised. I compliment Comcast more than people think. Um, but their response to this has been uh, among the best of the big companies uh, in terms of trying to make their network more accessible to as many people as possible uh, within the frame of which Comcast operates, which is to say um, you know, on Wall Street. I think it's not helpful to make unreasonable requests of what we think, you know, Brian Roberts, the CEO of Comcast should do because, you know, if the argument is that they should, you know, basically um, abandon all their business practices and, and, and they should, um, you know, run the network in a fundamentally different way. Um, that's not up to Comcast. It's up to the shareholders. We live in a larger economic system. And so I think it's worth complimenting Comcast. Other providers have done a number of things. And I think, Again, NDIA has done a really good job of detailing where some of those have fallen short, but they've given Comcast pretty high marks, and I think that's accurate. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that um, has always, uh, you know, created a lot of resentment on my part has been, you know, the story of New Orleans in Katrina when they lost everything in terms of any communication ability. Um, and the mayor at the time basically went to a couple of places like uh, Home Depot and so forth, and they basically got equipment to uh, including uh, Wi-Fi radios and so forth, and they strung up different um, uh, posts for telehealth. I'm, I'm sorry, with uh, for just general broadband, right? And as I look, right, at I'm sure the, they used it for telehealth, though. I'm sorry, say again. I'm sure they also used it for telehealth. You know, probably, probably. I mean, it was basically like I said, there was nothing else there, and um, you know, and I look at that and I say, if this virus issue gets even worse. It's time to look at doing anything you can to get um, a connection, a broadband connection, so that people can at least get, you know, you know, call it normal, regular um, health care. Uh, because the hospitals are going to be a little bit overwhelmed, and especially in the rural areas. So, we, you know, we need to make you know, we need to be able to go to extremes to get our people taken care of. Now, is that, you know, is that wrong? <laughs> is that really? No, you know? no, we need to. 
we need to go to extremes. I don't think what you've described is necessarily an extreme, unfortunately. I mean, I think some people might view it as such, but, um, you know, building a wireless network among, um, you know, the people who have the equipment at hand is something that is um, practical. It's something we should encourage more of. Um, you know, I think the work that the Internet Society does in terms of commu- encouraging community networks and training people how to big build what I might think of as ad hoc uh, wireless networks uh, is very important. Um, you know, Steve Song is someone who um, a number of people in this space know of his work um, in, in um, a lot of places, disadvantaged communities around the world, um, recognizing the ways in which we don't make the right tools available at the right times always. Uh, the way we use the spectrum, the way the, gears, the, way the gear is configured, um, it is not designed um, in ways that, that make uh, responses to these sorts of situations easy. Um, and I think we need to be more prepared in, in terms of, of having people have these skills and being ready to, to build these sorts of networks. You know, New York City has NYC Mesh, that um, that is uh, offers uh, an alternative in many ways to the standard, very large, more centralized networks. Um, but you know, there's something that I, I just think is worth noting. Let me encourage people to um, um, to read a book called um, "A Paradise Built in Hell" by Rebecca Solnit, um, which talks about um, Katrina. And I think it's important just because, as you were describing those networks that were being built. Um, I think it does a good job of exposing some of the dramatic racism that we can see during um, major disasters. And there were a lot of people, particularly African-Americans, who were experiencing health crises um, in, during that. And, and a lot of other people just had no interest in helping them. And, and here again is where I think um, you know, it, it comes back to telehealth to some extent and also wireless, um, which is that anywhere people go – they should have access to medical care, whether they're on a cellular device, if they're in their home on a fixed connection. Um, it should be a priority that a person in the year 2020 can get on a network and receive medical attention, even if it's just over a voice link. Um, that should be something that's important. Um, but also, I don't think it should be lost that in these times of crises, um, the, the tendency of some people to act in, in, in ways that are very racialized uh, comes out, and we need to be on guard for that. Yep, I'll agree. Um, what about the telehealth industry, the, the vendors, the uh, providers of services and so forth? Um, it could easily, they could easily look at broadband and say, well, that's not my problem. But I don't know. Is that realistic? I mean, what what would you think uh, the right responses should be for telehealth vendors? Well, I think one of the things that that they are focused on. Um, and no, I can't speak to the, all of them as a whole, but I've talked to a number of them that are, I think, recognize that right now we're in a situation that we need to grow telehealth. You know, I think it's not a matter of telehealth applications competing with each other for market share so much as the opportunity to grow the market. Um, I would hope that over the next year, you know, telehealth increases by a factor of 10 or 100 uh, where people are more likely to be using it. Um, in particular, I think 
um, you know, an application that um, that I'm hearing more about is people who are healthy right now. Uh, we actually want to keep people who are healthy away from doctors, <laughs> um, in part because we don't always know who's healthy, but also because um, um, in those in the hospitals in the in the clinics um, are where other people who with illnesses are, and so telehealth allowing people to do checkups uh, remotely um, can can help everyone. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of people don't think of it that way. Um, I also think a lot of people don't realize that telehealth also includes things like getting test results asynchronously on the, on a website, um, mm-hmm. making sure people are aware of that and that we have safe, secure manners of doing that. People are well um, instructed on how to do that. Um, you know, these are all things that happen, but I feel like every telehealth vendor should be focused on how to get more people to understand the vast promise of telehealth um, in terms of better outcomes Tremendous cost savings, um, you know, and then also just for those of us who think about broadband more than telehealth um, as a very good reason to make sure that we have high quality fixed broadband available to everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, in a, um, uh, a conference thing that you were on yesterday, um, you made an interesting point, which is um, if we look at the cost, a $10,000 cost of connecting a house um, with broadband, which just makes the, the incumbents lose their mind, right? But when you look at, you know, your typical bill for serious uh, healthcare stuff, um, $10,000 is probably on the low end of many of their things on their bill. So what would happen if, uh we somehow figured out a way to get the broadband connection as part of the uh, healthcare um, world. I mean, in terms of like billing, you know, if if uh, if a person was paying um, hundred bucks a month for their broadband uh, connection, why not have an insurance company underwrite half of that? Because that person is now with with good broadband, will be able to take care of a bunch of illnesses um, through telehealth. Uh, you know, and I, I feel like this is this is a challenge. I mean, this is among economists that's this is a well known phenomenon in terms of of who pays what costs, and if we could wave a magic wand and redistribute them. We could do a lot of things, but without the magic wand, we have to ask how can we actually redistribute them. Uh, I did an I did an interview with uh, Robert Wack, who really built that Westminster network in Maryland, and he's also very involved with healthcare. And he described a study in which um, the the hospital um, did a examination of basically giving people tablets and providing them with connectivity to them after. Uh, inpatient uh, procedures, I believe, and found that I think it was 100 patients. And over the course of a year, they avoided $2.1 million of costs um, by basically tr- using telehealth applications and tools. Um, and that's, and that's you know, it's one of those things that you think about it. And you know, so the cost of my internet access for a year is um, maybe a little more than a thousand dollars. I pay more than other people and a higher quality connection. Um, but a lot of people are probably paying on the order of seven, $800 a year for their internet connection. And, you know, a, a decent tablet probably costs eight or, um, you know, between five and $800 maybe. Um, 
so you know if if a hospital gave um a significant number of at risk patients um those things paid for the entire internet connection and a tablet You're talking about $1300 a year i suspect one if you prevent each person from coming back into the hospital one time those costs are um worth it and in particular i mean it's really particular to the, the cost to the hospital if you're readmitting a patient for something that that they had done before you know if if um you checked someone out and then they had a had an infection that they got from the hospital or you know there's there's a variety of ways in which we penalize hospitals for sending people home when they're not ready or not ready to be cared for um so they have a real incentive there to make sure people are on track and not being readmitted um but this is the answer is basically how do we do that it's government um a lot of people think of government as being this distant um entity that is unresponsive to our concerns and I have some similar criticisms of certain aspects of certain levels of government, but fundamentally, this is why humans created government to try to solve collectively what we cannot do individually or via the market. We need government policy to basically figure out how to expand high quality internet access, understanding that one of the indirect side effects of that will be massive savings on healthcare. Some of that will be privately uh, collected, but a lot of it also will be savings that Medicare experiences. And then, you know, we won't necessarily be able to tell all of the savings we get in Medicare and Medicaid because of everyone having Internet access. But we know from models that it will more than balance out if we do this correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, that's the key. Um, I would say as we wrap up this show, um, the... Uh, the, the the telehealth community, you know, providers, project managers that have worked for, for companies and so forth, all of them, they need to understand, I think, better how broadband affects them, how it can affect them, um, and where the, you know, the dollars are as far as um, making health here. Um, and with that, we're going to have to wrap it up. But Chris, thank you very, very much for your um, time and your insights. And uh, also uh, another shout out to um, Kim. Um, you know, and I'm looking forward to uh, working with this, um, you know, with this barbershop program. So I appreciate uh, you coming by the show. Uh, Thank you, and we'll do this again next week. Everybody have a good day, and stay safe. Thank you, Craig. Thanks. Take it easy.